Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. If you're listening to this in the week it was released, and why wouldn't you be? Join us next week at our special live event, Brexit Tamed Live. Uh, it's on Tuesday, March the 26th. An absolutely bumper panel of David Ivanovich, Sarah Baxter, Phil Collins, Danny Finkelstein, Lucy Fisher, Katie Perry, Hugo Rifkin, Satnam Sangera, Henry Zeffman. Rachel Sylvester and loads of others, Quentin Letts, and I think we've got uh, Nadine Doris and Chuck Ramuna to uh, chase around the stage as well. Uh, so go to mytimesplus.co.uk to get tickets for that, and you can see us recording the podcast live on Sunday, April the 7th. Go to podcastlive.com for your tickets. Right, plugs over. We're going to sort of talk about Brexit today, but unusually, I'm not actually in... Uh, Westminster in panic mode, which is quite nice. I'm in our News UK building in London Bridge, where I'm delighted to be joined by Hugo Rifkin, Times columnist, who's going to be talking to us about the rise of the far right. Lindsay McIntosh is Deputy News Editor and has some good news on the fight against breast cancer. But first, this is Alice Thompson talking about the inevitable. John Burko loves taking guests around the Speaker's house overlooking the Thames. His favourite part is stroking the astonishing four-poster bed in the staterooms made for the monarch to sleep in the night before the coronation. He sees himself, if not as the king, the arch-modernising kingmaker, bringing in a creche, sorting out expenses and calling out sexism. In fact, he's a bully and a narcissist, more pompous and priggish than many of his ruddy-faced male predecessors. It was astonishing for him to inform the media before number 10 that he was dropping his Brexit bombshell this week. He should have been forced to go last summer when he promised he would. You should go now. Wow. Have you had this tour then, Alice? Have you been round and looked I have, at the bed? Yes. Well, actually, I've been round for various LGBTQ events at the Speaker's House because he's very involved in that. So he's always talking about modernising and about women and about bringing more ethnic diversity and um, more gender diversity into the House of Commons. And in fact, he says it all, and then he is known to be quite bullying to his staff, although he would dispute that. And he just does love the sound of his own voice. It was extraordinary that, even by his standards, his statement in the House of Commons on Monday was pretty extraordinary. Almost extraordinary is that stripy jumper he's wearing at the moment, (laughs) which I think is quite extraordinary. (laughs) 
But he doesn't like being picked up. So today when people were talking to him, you know, when he, if you get anyone arguing back, he hates it. And that's the thing about the Speaker. They can't really argue back because they all have to be on his side if they want to get called. Although, actually, I mean, that has been eroded pretty massively. Mm-hmm. So on, on Monday, he stood up and he read out it was about three sides of A4 explaining why he was going to rule out the government bringing back the meaningful vote unless there were substantial changes. And then lots of people stood up and pointed out that he was quite happy to tear up precedent back in January. Uh, and now suddenly precedent is king again. But actually there were quite a lot of people who are willing to challenge him. He has basically lost control of the House. Yes, so Andrew Leadsom, I think, actually, having always never been a huge defender of hers, I do think she's been rather extraordinarily good at going on about it. And she has called him out on various occasions. Um, <laughs> spectacular, uh, spectacular effect. And yeah. um, what do you think, Alice, is the, the impact on Brexit on all of this? Because obviously some people are very excited and actually whether or not people agree with what Burko's done basically is whether or not you agree with Brexit. What do you yes, think is Yes, so everyone else, the only thing that worries me is that the ERG seems to be quite happy with what he's done, which is surprising because he is known to be a Remainer. Um, why he's doing this, and everyone's trying to work out what he's done and why he's done it, but it's assumed that he's done it to try and help the Remainers. So it's rather surprising that all the ER, that, that when you look at people like Jacob Moss, they're all smiling. They might just be idiots. It's true. <laughs> My long running theory about the ERG is that the ERG are sleeper agents on the side of Remain, that everything they do impedes and diminishes the prospects of Brexit. So I reckon, I reckon that's what's going on. They're just on the other side. <laughs> I mean, it's as good as explanation as any other. Um, Lindsay, you were news editing on Monday when, I mean, it was quite quiet, wasn't it? When there was basically nothing happening it was, on the Brexit front. It was. I mean, we felt like there should be some kind of Brexit story that we should be able to tell on the front page because, you know, we're um, a handful of days out from what is supposed to be Brexit day, so it, it really should be on the front page. But I was going into afternoon conference thinking... We've got a few lines that we can put up to the editor. Let's hope he likes them. And then... A little bit samey. A little bit samey. Some of them a bit before. What are the ERG saying? What are the Remainers saying? Etc. And then I think on Sky, on the ticker tape, at about quarter past three or the back of three, um, it was announced that uh, Berko was going to stand up and do this statement at half past three, which, by the way, is when Times Afternoon News Conference starts. So not ideal timing, (laughs) thank you. But... Uh, political editor said, right, I'll text you when you're in conference. I'll tell you what's what's happening. Uh, it could be just a little procedural thing. He could be talking, ruling out meaningful vote three, or he could be um, setting rules around meaningful vote four. And I got a message in conference and it just said, uh, he seems to have ruled out meaningful vote three unless substantial change. And everyone just sat there and went, uh, what does that mean then? And <laughs> so all the potential fallout then started to come in. I think he must be devastated on the front pages of all the papers, don't you think? He must be absolutely (laughs) furious because he's always been very keen that the office should be... It's not about him and it's about uh, Parliament and uh, and all of that. Um, Hugo, what did you make? Because there is... I mean, I can't help looking at Burko and just thinking he's a prat, uh, sort of self-indulgent and attention-seeking. But then, then annoying, he does do some stuff which is right sometimes, but then you end up just... He sort of seems to think that being quite good 40% of the time gives him licence to be a total pain in the ass the rest of the time. I mean, I, I sort of, I completely disagree. I think people get confused. People, people conflate the questions of whether John Burko is a nice person, no, and whether he's good at being a speaker. Yes, yes he is. Uh, his decision his decision yesterday, it makes perfect sense. You can't just keep bringing back the same bill again and again and again, going, OK, okay this time, OK, please, OK, please. And if you want to do what they've done, which is basically to have this sort of rolling series of votes, 
you need to set up some kind of mechanism for it beforehand. You need to agree that this is what you're going to do. I think he's got a point. Theresa May, the government, behaved with a sort of massive assumption that, that the processes of Parliament would just do what they wanted them to do. I mean, I, th- I don't think in the long term this really makes any difference. They'll find some way to have their vote. They'll tweak it slightly. The same thing will basically happen. But he's 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 you know he's done what he's done his job, which is to make sure that Parliament runs properly. So fair enough. I do worry what his overall persona and approach do to the debate though because we are so used to kind of this parliamentary theatre and in particular you know he is the kind of pinnacle of theatrics but if you look at the House of Commons if you're a kind of an outsider watching it the the theatrical as I say approach that he takes almost sort of diminishes it on occasion particularly when we're talking about something so important about you know the, the economic constitutional political future of the country so close to a deadline date and and he's turning it into a circus and I don't think that is necessarily conducive to to constructive um, public debate. No, but that goes back to my first point mm. about whether about, about whether he's a wanker or not. But it's beyond whether or not he's a nice <laughs> you know, person. Um, I mean, it's um, this is how the House of Commons runs. It is how it functions. You know, it sort of it almost makes me think of like when um when all the SNP MPs got in and they were clapping in the chamber and they were told mm. not to. And that on one level that's absurd because why would you not clap in the chamber when you when you approve of something? But on other, these are the rules of the place. That is kind of how it works. And I I think he's just he's doing what his job is is meant to be. Everyone always hates the speaker. The last speaker that anyone people liked was maybe Betty Boothroyd, and only a bit. You know, being the speaker is is being the, the the sort of the point man for the absurdities of the of the functions of our political system. I thought one of the best pieces we've had in the Times was the MP going on paternity leave and suddenly realising yep. as he was on paternity leave, changing nappies, just what a mess the whole thing was. Bim Alfred wrote a piece of red box, and he he had two weeks off, and he said he couldn't believe how awful it looked from the outside. <laughs> I mean, he said it, I mean to be fair, he did say it felt pretty awful on the inside, but <laughs> it was even more awful on the outside. Um, and I said, actually the the main point about this Burko vow is that it doesn't really matter about precedent and rules and all that. It comes down to maths. Unless or until Theresa May has a majority for something in the Commons, it doesn't sort of matter about whether or not Burko rules it in and out. And if actually she does now look like she has a majority and maybe 50 Tory MPs tell the Times or Con Home or Twitter that they're now on board, Burko then couldn't stand in the way of it. No, really. so they can actually do it. So. In a way, it, that, that's why it was even more groundstanding from Burke because he knew it wasn't going to get him very far. He just wanted his name in the papers, really. And I think he felt that it, no one had really been taking him very seriously for a little bit. And that here that. he was in the middle of it. You know, he, he's, you know, he's centre stage and yet his voice wasn't being heard. So I do think there was a certain amount of that. I also think with Theresa May, you're getting to the stage now when so much money is sloshing around being given to MPs to try and get them to vote that it's becoming so unsavoury that... Maybe it was a good idea for Burko just to stop the whole thing for a few minutes. And so it now means we're in the sort of slightly odd position of probably not a huge amount will happen this week. I mean, geared up for another another extraordinary week in Westminster. We've got the EU Council on Thursday, where we assume that they'll put a new cover on it and maybe change the font, <laughs> and that will be considered different enough. What do we, obviously not in the predictions business, what do we think might end up happening? We are supposed to, be, this is Tuesday morning, we are supposed to be leaving the EU at the end of next week. <laughs> I've been better prepared to go on holiday at the end of next week. What do we think is going to, well, I'll start with you, Hugo, what do you think is going to happen? I think her deal in some form with some kind of coat on is going to go through. I've basically thought that from the start. I don't see... I don't see what else happens. I think that I don't think it'll necessarily. I don't think I don't think we are leaving the EU at the end of next week. I think there will be some. I think there will be a short delay rather than a long delay. But I think basically something that is, to all intents and purposes, her deal will go through. The ERG have they've got to get to the point where they realise they're the reason why it's not happening. 
they're the reason why Brexit might not happen. It's all down to them. You know, I joked earlier that they're this sort of remain, remain sleeper cell. Do I really think they are? No, of course they don't really think they are. That is how they're behaving. At some point, they've got to realise they're the ones who are jeopardising it. And and you see people are you know people are starting to slip over to the other side. There was this fantastic exchange on Twitter the other day between between Guido Fawkes and Julia Hartley Brewer. Where 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 uh, Paul Paul Staines, Gita Fawkes was was saying, you know, I think we should, I think people should just take the deal now, and then you know make it a better Brexit once it's happened. And she was going, no, 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 it has to be a proper Brexit. May's deal is basically remain, and you could see it was basically the sort of two sides of a debate. Like it was basically half of it realizing that the other half that they thought had just been sounding mad for for kind of rhetorical effect actually really meant it, and suddenly that was their problem now, you know. And that that's kind of the dynamics of it. I think they've got to come around, so I think it will happen. Lindsay, yeah, I mean, I think we're talking short extension. Uh, I think when you get into long extension territory, you're obviously heading towards uh, the next set of European elections, um, which I think is unpalatable to the ERG, even though there's reports in our paper today that that they're suggesting, oh, we could stay in and create a bit of trouble inside the EU. You know, I I don't think that's going to work, even taking account of what Hugo has been saying about the the mad elements of of that side of the debate. Um, So I think short extension, um, some shape or form of her deal, some kind of fudge, gets through and then that becomes up for negotiation finessing under whatever becomes the next perhaps um, Tory leader or indeed the next uh, the next government and Alice, a clean sweep I, is all No, I think I have to do the pessimistic version then, don't I? Because I, I think, I mean, the most pessimistic for me is the general election. I just don't think I could face a third no, one. No, no. So, we just don't, so we don't think no, no deals? I think no deal probably is off the table yeah. now, but I think the idea of another election, I think there will definitely be a leadership election. There'll possibly be two leadership elections. Well, there's going to be one anyway with the Lib Dems. We could have every single party up for grabs in the next year. Um, and I think that I'm not. I'm not sure that a Lib Dem leadership election is going to be enough for <laughs> <laughs> election addicts. <laughs> yeah, I think we need a clean sweep, don't you? But I think there will be that. And I, I just can't rule out not having another election now. I think actually, I think so much has happened in the last two years. It is so broken in Westminster now. You can just everyone you speak to is completely. It doesn't matter whether they're Remain or Leave or Labour or Tory or even even if you find a Lib Dem. Everything is just so broken, you know, the, the whipping operation, you know, cabinet responsibility, all of that at some point, the big reset, somebody's got to sort of pull the plug out and turn it off and on again. I'm waiting for Ruth Davidson because she's about to come back from her time to leave. <laughs> so she's my last hope, I have to say. She doesn't want to. She doesn't want to do it. She doesn't want to come here and make everything better. You know, she's, 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 she's happy where she is. And finally, if Bim spent two weeks on paternity leave and thought, wow, this looks bad, <laughs> I think Ruth's watching it for a few months. There is no way. It's more like she comes back and resigns as a Scottish leader and just... just goes off and does something else. Anyway, I suspect we'll come back and talk about Brexit again uh, next week. But uh, let's move on uh, for now. This is Hugo Rifkin. There was a time when preachers of violent jihad were considered almost amusing. They were deluded and they were clowns and it was like they were from another planet. But then, after 9-11 and after 7-7, we learned that even the most absurd of them could and did radicalise people to violence. In the wake of the massacre of Muslims last week in Christchurch, at what point do we come to the same conclusion about the semi-ironic, trolling, clownish bits of the alt-right? Now, Hugo, you've written about this in your column today. It struck me, actually, I hadn't sort of joined up those dots, but I suppose it's the sign of a good column that you're right. What starts off is a sort of semi-joke thing, snowballing, and nobody can really tell where it... You talk about Milo being one of them. You know, I remember meeting him at tech parties and just thinking, oh, he's a bit of a prat, but that was 
you know, and now he's had his visa revoked for Australia and he's all part of that sort of alt-right thing. So where do you think it happens? If we can see the parallels of what happened with jihadism, what can we do about it with the far right? The parallels are kind of the important bit that you yeah. go from, you go from this, this sort of voice in the public domain that a lot of people find to be absurd to this realisation that actually people are being radicalised by this sort of thing. And I think when you're looking at what's happening on the far right... Uh, I mean the the shooter in the shooter in Christchurch. He was so much a product of that kind of that internet subculture. It was so obvious. It was so glaring. That is absolutely where he's coming from. And I think when you when I'm talking about the kind of the clowns who are inspiring that kind of thing, I'm not directly meaning individuals like 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 Milo Yiannopoulos, although he's a he seems like a pretty nasty person. Uh, I mean, it just that culture. That culture is a culture that that hides. I mean, no, it's not even quite right to say that it hides white supremacism behind humour. It combines white supremacism and humour. It's a it's a bit of a mess of both. It's sometimes ironic. It's sometimes not. But it obviously is inspiring people to behave seriously. Uh, there are many 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 parallels in terms of the how identities are formed among jihadists and our new emerging far right. I think we need to be on top of it and spot it. Exactly where we go next, well, that I mean, that takes us into very difficult and different territory. Essentially, what we're talking about is some form of, of, of internet regulation, internet control, internet censorship. It's very, very hard to do, or at least it's very, very hard to do without being massively illiberal. We've been that illiberal with jihadists online. It's quite difficult to be a jihadist online these days. You can communicate sort of surreptitiously, but in order but to, have to be in any kind of public sphere, all the all the platforms shut you down, and sooner or later, special branch kick down your door. I'm wary of suggesting we ought to be doing that for essentially far right trolls, but then maybe that's my own squeamishness. I'm not sure. Alice, what do you make of it? If there are those parallels, what can be done about it to try and? I mean, it's not even nip it in the bud because the you know the bud is already bloomed into something horrific in in New Zealand. Well, the one I was really interested in that Hugo mentioned in his column is PewDiePie, which I didn't actually know about. And then when the gunman in New Zealand mentioned it, I said to my children, just without thinking, do any of you know anything about it, assuming that they wouldn't know much. The 12-year-old not only knows everything about PewDiePie and is totally obsessed by it, but also knew that the gunman had mentioned it already. And he's not particularly obsessed by politics so it was it was to me it was terrifying and then he said oh no he's just you know I just watch gaming on there and he's you know he's this very nice sort of Scandinavian you know guy on that and you think okay well he how nice is he so I did start researching it and I did think actually we've let a whole generation of children become very involved with PewDiePie and it's, it's a lot of their life and well, they, so the, the, a lot of them are fans of him and we don't know just how dangerous he is or, or whether he's completely innocuous and actually he's just been taken over well exactly I mean so the thing with him I mean there was PewDiePie, he's, you know, he, he was until I think yesterday the, the, the world's most viewed or most mm. followed YouTube personality. There was some, I can't remember exactly what it was, there was some directly far-right linked fuss about him a few years ago. He said he's made either, a couple of it was either about Muslims horrible Jews, comments, I can't remember Jews, which, I think, and, and apologised afterwards, but, but, but kind of made a bit of a joke about it. It was but, quite unpleasant. Right, but, so, but the point of him, his prominence, is that there is this sort of, this, again, in this sort of strange internet subculture, there is this battle to keep him being the most mm. subscribed person because the alternative is that it's a Bollywood music label. So it's just this sort of tokenistic, quite silly, pranky, far-right little fight that is exactly the kind of thing that it's very hard to take seriously. It's just people, it's just it's stupid kids on the internet. Mm-hmm. But then if that is what manifests into something that someone actually mentions before they go and shoot up a mosque, 
maybe you need to take this stuff more seriously. Yeah. And the parents have no idea about it. So actually, most of the parents at the time, we, none of us, when we talked about it, really knew much about it at all, with our children obviously totally obsessed by it. I mean, it's popped up on graffiti here, I think, as well. You know, sub PewDiePie, so subscribe mm. to PewDiePie with um, swastikas on um, sort of walls in, I think it's, it's Oxfordshire. And um, yeah, I mean, even if you just consider the guy's name, you know, it's this sort of weird cartoonish sounding name. And then, as Hugo says, it's sort of being mentioned in, in manifest festers linked to the uh, the New Zealand killings. There is still a massive leap between people sharing stuff and saying dreadful things online and then committing a massive uh, atrocity. The, 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 and because in his so-called manifesto or rant or whatever you want to call it, he, he refers to all these things, it doesn't necessarily mean that one thing leads to another, does it? I mean, no, of, of course it doesn't. I mean, there's the question of where you, where you draw that line is an interesting one. I mean, there's... um. There's numerous columnists. There's columnists on our paper who are very, very critical of Islam. I think there's a leap between them and, say, somebody like Alex Jones, who shouts in his show about this is a war, this is a war, fight back, they're coming for you, this is a war. You know, that kind of stuff I'd consider directly incitement. I'm not sure it'd be, it'd be legal in this country. I mean, the, the, problem when you, the problem when you're getting into the realms of, of the way this kind of stuff is discussed online and sort of 4chan and 8chan and, and, and sites like that is there's there's so many levels of irony and humor that it's not quite clear what's sincere and 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 what and what isn't sincere um and um and what it boils down to like a lot of this stuff like a lot of internet discourse stuff boils down to the freedom of many voices these days which generally speaking is a good thing but it used to be the case that public rhetoric was delivered by a relatively select number of people. Most people couldn't do it. If you wanted to make your voice heard, and you, you could write a letter to a newspaper and then have to publish it, or you could spray something on a wall. Whereas these days you have, you know, anyone anyone can say anything. And so we're in a situation where we're trying to sort of, trying to get a handle on how we can enforce sensible cultural norms of the sort that are relatively easy to enforce when you're talking about a handful of 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 spokesmen or politicians because they have a they have a, a, a face and a stake and a traceable where you how you how you map that onto literally everybody and that's really what the the, the problem in dealing with all kind of new forms of internet discourse is whether it's whether it's racism whether it's hate whether it's political dishonesty whatever it is it all really comes down to that kind of thing i thought it was interesting that the new zealand prime minister the fact that she doesn't want to have the killer's name mentioned she's not going to mention the killer's name which at the beginning feels a bit harry potter and you know, yeah. don't mention <laughs> Baltimore. but actually i think she's she is right the problem is it's about publicity often isn't it and, and if we can try and stop these people from bad publicity and talk about the victims and not try and talk too much about perpetrators I, I think it would be beneficial in the end actually and that is true Lindsay as well isn't it of the manifesto it's not a private diary kept under a bed that was never meant to be read you know there was a purpose to every sentence in it that, that it was supposed to be published and dissected yeah. and overinterpreted and and all of that yeah and that sort of comes back to Hugo's point as well about I guess kind of parity of platform now that we have you know Twitter that that everyone can access on the internet more broadly so that somebody who is a sort of egg or a, or a horrible far-right symbol on Twitter has got the same potential reach you know, as somebody who is making very coherent, clear points, somebody that is perhaps an elected politician or whatever. Um, so you've got that parity of, of reach and, and voice, but then how do we make sure that, that you know, voices that are spreading 
hate um, are tackled without, you know, it's, it's very easy. We're sitting in um, a very nice newsroom in London Bridge having this discussion. And I'm aware that I'm at risk of um, getting into that sort of liberal elite, as it were, world where somebody's got more right to voice than Why somebody else. just think like us? Well, exactly, exactly. I realise that we're getting to that point. So, so you, you don't do that. But then perhaps you do what um, Alice is saying there, which is, you know, you don't, um, you don't use the names, you don't engage, you, you know, you don't allow any of this to be spread simply in a kind of um, sort of self-starting power to the people sort of way. I mean, in terms of that, in terms of like what what can be said, where I've I've aware my views have changed massively, quite recently. When when you look at things like um like students, no platforming people, mm. for example, a few years ago, maybe even two or three years ago, I was I had very much a traditional centrist dad position on that. You know, yeah. I was like never yeah. did me any harm. In fact, the column I wrote today about about, about all this starts with. In, I think it was in 1996, hearing Omar Bakri, who's now in jail in Lebanon, yeah. addressing the Cambridge Union, you know. Uh, and I was like, that is a good thing for students to do. Whereas I now realise that people much younger than me understand with an, in a sort of instinctive way that I don't, that that everybody has a voice, that there's not, not really any such thing. Like, no, when you no-platform somebody these days, you are not shutting them up. You are you are altering their prominence. You're, alter, you're altering their endorsement in a way, in a way that really... I think people of my sort of generation and older, we slightly struggle to make sense of that. But actually, if you kick some, if you tell someone they can't talk at the Cambridge Union, they don't disappear. They're not silenced. They don't fail to be able to speak to the same sort of people. They're just not endorsed. They're just sort of not endorsed by doing that. And um, and so we have the same sort of issue with people like the shooter. Uh, I, I approve of the idea of politicians not saying his name. I, I didn't didn't use his name in my column. I had qualms about whether I should even be writing about his manifesto because he obviously wanted wanted people to. Mm-hmm. I mean, what I was really deciding there was whether his manifesto deserved to be in the Times, not whether people should be able to read it because people are going to be able to read it anyway. And it's a whole different set of kind of speech and political calculations that are really unfamiliar. And at a very basic level, that kind of goes back to before you know we had these platforms when you just had this guy who was you know these extreme views who, to use Hugo's example, was sort of scrolling on a wall or was sending green and uh, ink notes to newspapers, they could be ignored. And in the same way, I suppose, he was the guy who was ranting in the corner of a pub and people endorsed him by their feet by sitting on the other side of the bar or leaving the bar and not, you know, not engaging with them. I do think the younger generation are just getting much more savvy than we are. You, you look at it and you look at how they're doing climate change and, you know, and, and, and how they're using their voice actually I think is is quite clever I think that they are saying this is what we want to hear this is what we don't want to hear they're not saying no point in using your iPhone you know don't that they're engaging with it in a new and different way but there is there has definitely been a shift in attitude towards the likes of Facebook and Google mm. and Twitter that not that long ago I mean even politicians wouldn't criticize them because they would see be seen to be sort of mm. stuffy granddads whereas Facebook was all people in t-shirts on hoverboards in <laughs> you know in sunny Silicon Valley or whatever Whereas now there is quite a, a hard push by politicians to do more with social media. Is, is it just that everyone's growing up a bit about the but nonsense, our, actually, of just... Yes, but I think our generation have this sense of, oh, all children shouldn't be on social media, and, oh, it's appalling, and, oh, their brains are being changed by it. And actually, I think they are being more sensible. They're saying, yeah, it, it's great technology. How can we use it? What should we be using it for? You know, we're not all having breakdowns. Um, if we use it, it's just how you use it and how you know. Don't don't let yourself be manipulated by it. And I think that's quite interesting, actually. But the idea that the internet isn't a free fall. I mean, no other industry is a free fall. If you want to manufacture things or sell things or provide a, you know any other sort of service, you are regulated. Well, it's it's a point I've made 
a few times that when you look at social media particularly, social media is, a, is an American export. It's the export of an American product, and the product that America is exporting is the American notions of free speech. It's the First Amendment. And so what it, what it does, America, you know, America was built for that, but you have American, you have American free speech that basically comes crashing into every other jurisdiction, and it messes up our politics because we have a slightly different notion of free speech, and it does catastrophic things in, in places like Burma, where where free speech has just never really been on been on the agenda, it causes genocide in places when you have American notions of free free speech coming 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 crashing in, and so it's 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 not so much that it's um that it's outside the law, it's just according to different laws that aren't our laws. Well, we've run out of time on that, but it is absolutely fascinating, and I'm sure it's something we'll um, come back to both the the what terrible events in New Zealand, but also the wider question of free speech. Um, coming up after the break, Lindsay's got some good, nice, positive news for us to end on. We'll be back after this short break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Politics Podcast from The Times, and this is Lindsay McIntosh. So I bring good news. There's a study from Milan which is released that shows that breast cancer death rates uh, are falling in Britain, and they're falling faster than elsewhere in Europe. And when we uh, debate about how terrible things are at the moment, as we shoot and, and how bad things are going on, I think we need to remember that um, the world and the country is getting better in some areas, and that's happening because of decisions that have been made, because of clever people looking at problems um, and affecting change and and trying to deal with those problems. Now, Lindsay, this was on the front page of the Times on Tuesday, um, partly because it was some nice positive news um, alongside the great big scary picture of John Burke. Um But also, we sort of, yeah, while we're, we're totally obsessed with what's happening in Westminster, we sort of forget there's another world going on. And, and this was probably a study that was announced several years ago, and people who are much cleverer than any of this in this room have been beavering away. And... and lo and behold, some positive news comes out of it. Yeah, so this this problem tracks back decades. I mean, Britain has um, performed really quite badly in uh, cancer treatment um, and and also in terms of, of uh, number of cases of cancer. And there have been reasons for that going, going back decades. And um, 
people, as you say, that are much cleverer than us, um, <laughs> decided to tackle that. And they did it through a lot of different interventions. So they did things like awareness campaigns. They improved screening. They invested lots of money into uh, research and studies and produced um, better treatment. And as a result of all of this, um, as we see um, some sort of 30 years down the line, and in particular in, the, in recent years, um, death rates are falling in Britain. So the average death rates predicted for this year compared to 2010 2014, down 18%. Down 18% in Britain, and uh, that compares with 9% kind of on average across uh, Europe. Um, and one of the reasons is that we did start from, from a much well, higher point. Is it because we were just not very good at it before? Part of it is that we weren't very good at it before, but we have uh, improved faster the, than you would expect us to have done in other countries. Alice, this is some nice, welcome, cheery news, isn't it? Yeah, I think um, with breast cancer in Britain, we were so low that in a way we had to do something about it because, and also because it was considered to be, it is a female death and that it was seen to be an area that we just hadn't focused on and it was focusing far more on other issues. And I think that there are very few areas during Brexit that actually have really seen any good news stories in different departments because people are so worried about a no deal. Whereas I think with breast cancer, it has and you know, everyone has regular screenings now. They've taken up much more. And um, there has been some debate about whether or not it's good to have so much screening because you sometimes pick up mm. false negatives or false positives. Um, but in general, I mean, all my friends and I definitely, you get to a certain age and you definitely now do it. And my mother's generation never did that, even people 15 years older than me. And what, what do you think is behind that shift? Because it's, it's not just more leaflets from the doctor, is it? Is it a cultural thing? No, What's and you get happened? more reminders, and um, it's happening more often, and it's younger. And they're also, what they've been very clever at is looking at history. So they look at the history of, you know, I've, I've never been asked until recently, but now I'm asked what my grandmother's history was, my, my mother's history was, whether I have aunts, sisters, anyone who's got a history of breast cancer. So they are actually looking to see what those are. And if, if you're being flagged up, you are then going to have a chance, actually. Um, to see if you've got particular genes or and I think that makes a huge difference I think knowing what diet does makes a huge difference we suggested it might have something to do with HRT but I'm not sure that's been proven yet is it the I think that we do suggest that there is a link because we have uh, we've I think we've reduced our reliance on mm. HRT in this country and, and so has Germany I think there have been changes related to that because it's always very difficult with any health issues to know what to do and what not to do there's, there's so, so many, many conflicting yes, stories exactly. so there's always conflicting stories about take this don't take that but this one they're literally I think everything's come together you do need screening you know you it, actually you do need to eat more healthily you should be looking at your family background and I think all that together is produced it's, it's really interesting I think as well to sit it beside um, cervical cancer at the moment because we have a real problem just now in this country I'm sorry to get back to bad news but we have a, uh, we have a big problem in that um, cervical cancer rates are going up screening uh, screening uptake is going down um, and I think what uh, can be done is sort of lessons can be learned from, from breast cancer and perhaps some of, of the measures which were taken to ca uh, tackle the problem that we have with breast cancer can be done with cervical cancer. Um, and I've certainly seen, you know, I get text messages all the time from the doctor saying, you know, have you, have you uh, come in for your screening test? And I think we've seen uh, there's a big advert that's running uh, on TV at the moment um, promoting going along for screening. So. In fact, Theresa May's more than once talked about it in the... It 
PMQs because she, she knows it's another way of getting that message across. So she's yeah. talking about it and saying you should go and do it. What we mustn't do then is forget male cancers as well because there's going to be this huge upsurge in women being tested. But you do have to look at men who actually are worse at going to their GPs yeah. if they have a problem well, than fact, women are. So the stats say that overall cancer deaths have fallen twice as fast in men in recent years, but they are still 60% more likely to die of the condition. I think a lot of that is um, to do with social issues and, and things like smoking and drinking. So I think men obviously started from a very high point of smoking and drinking and they tackled that to an extent and therefore the cancer rates came down. But women um, were sort of uh, late adopters of such habits, um, which had an impact on cancer rates there. Hugo? Um, no, I've just been, been learning a lot. I don't, I don't really have sort of much to add on that. I mean, I'm aware women are much better at going to the doctor than men are. And it's, um, I mean, you, you do wonder, you do wonder how whether our kind of our, our breast cancer rates were so high because, I mean, because of a sort of historically male-dominated medicine or something like that. And and Possibly. and and it's 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 part of a part of a general social change. But no, it's just great, and I'm, I'd rather just listen than talk. <laughs> I think, the good I, think, news I think this might be a first for columnists <laughs> on, the, on the podcast. Well, in fact, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. Um, I think it was in the week of International Women's Day, by coincidence, but we had uh, Caroline Criado Perez on talking about her book, which is fascinating, about how basically all data is skewed towards men. And so in lots of ways, research is always done about the male body and then the female body is tacked on afterwards so particularly things like breast cancer cervical cancer we had some really interesting uh, stories in on the day of international women's day actually and one of them was about research which showed that certain drugs particularly drugs that have been around for a long time like statins may not work in the same way on women as they do in men because uh, women are less likely to be involved in the original trials and there's reasons for that so a lot of the trials are led by male researchers who perhaps have bias to recruiting male guinea pigs perhaps women aren't so willing to come forward and the guys behind uh, this research which I think was maybe the Netherlands said that it should be a regulation that you have to have women that take part in the studies. It was absolutely the stuff that Caroline had was absolutely extraordinary she even talked about a sort of a, a seatbelt uh, adaptation for pregnant women so to put your seatbelt man and that was tested on a male shaped <laughs> dummy in car you know I think her book's been the most seminal book I've read this year actually and I think all men and women should read mm. so I always thought I was really really bad at filling up the car with petrol I just thought and I never mentioned it to anyone it was just one of those embarrassing facts that I couldn't fill up the car particularly and I was trying to dodge it and it wasn't in what way you sort of spraying it all over the well, side well it just never really worked the nozzle never worked it was always slightly awkward it always stopped and started and I kind I, of I, assumed I, I'm I'm so, sorry I'm, I'm, I'm confused you would remember to do it. I would do it. But I didn't mind paying just, for it instead of my putting husband. putting the nozzle in just but didn't when, make it work. Once the nozzle in, it, I, it, I'd have to repeatedly squeeze yeah. it. And then in, you suddenly realise in our book that the nozzles are all made for male hands. Oh, I see. Really so literally the size of it. Yes. Yeah. So it's all to the size. So then I signed I read the book and I said to my husband, do you have a problem? He went, what are you talking about? He said, just fill up the car with petrol. So I said, right, you can do it. I know. It's made for you. After we, Good after work. our episode went out a couple of weeks ago, there, there ended up being a massive conversation on Twitter in response to one of the tweets about mobile phones because mobile phones have got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, but they're, you know, only actually men with quite big hands mm. can hold them. And actually loads of women who were listening saying, I just couldn't work out why I kept off my phone and none of my male friends were doing. You feel more clumsy. And the other one is every time you get on a train, you can't put your luggage up. So you have to ask a man to put your luggage up. And you realise now that they were all made for men. So you see, Hugo, it'll change your life. No, well, I'm just sort of thinking, I mean, the, the experience, for me, as, as a man, a lot of the experience of having children is lifting stuff. 
and I mean my my life like as in my kind of sort of twenties and early thirties, I didn't really lift stuff, <laughs> and now I spend my whole time lifting stuff. And the amount of the amount of my kind of my role as a parent, which is just carrying, pulling, fetching, being the person who can lift this up to there. So I think it'd be great if all this stuff was built more for women, mm. so I could lift less crap. <laughs> Not least because you and I have jobs which don't involve a lot of physical <laughs> lifting during the day. So we're not really we're no more de- adept at lifting heavy stuff in sheds uh, than you know than, than anyone else. Um, I think we've we've run out of time, I'm afraid. I'm glad it's nice to finish on a nice positive note, though. Uh, don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Get your tickets to Brexit Times live at mytimesplus.co.uk or the tickets for podcast live are at podcastlive.com sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box but for now my thanks to Alice Lindsay and Hugo for me Matt Jolly it's goodbye